This episode of the Bloodjet Writing Hour is produced in collaboration with the Digital Sala, which is a virtual Philippinex literary festival happening on various platforms throughout April 2020. The Digital Sala is a collaborative decentralized and grassroots effort developed and always in the process of development by writers, artists, and organizers committed to supporting each other and our broader communities. The Digital Sala is a radically flexible, build-as-we-go-along, open-ended collaborative effort. Thus far, we've hosted strategy sessions for solidarity projects, we've supported and publicized open mics, workshops, and other aligned events happening in our communities. And we're looking forward to additional casual, impromptu, formal, or informal sessions, readings, workshops, writing groups, panels, and other types of collaborations and gatherings. In a desire to build community against gatekeeping, border making, and hierarchies, the Digital Sala leaves a wide open and ongoing invitation to you, your ideas, your needs, and your dreams. And we invite you to show up, gather, co-build, co-create, and hold space for our communities. Ultimately, we're all here to show up for each other, and we plan to archive these experiences and build resources toward future initiatives and collaborations. For more information on the Digital Sala, you can find us at the Digital Sala on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I do want to um, thank Meredith Toulousan, who is our guest today, for allowing us to produce this episode alongside the Digital Sala. Um, Meredith, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much, and um, it's such a wonderful statement to um, to listen to right before we get to talk about my book. Thank you, and um, I'll read your bio, and then we can get started with talking about your book, Ferris, which I so enjoyed and really could not put down, and I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on um, today. Um, so Meredith Toulousan is an award-winning author and journalist. She has received awards from GLAAD, the Society of Professional Journalists, and the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association. She's also the founding executive editor of THEM, Condé Nast's LGBTQ digital platform, where she is currently a contributing editor. She's also the author of Fairest, which is forthcoming in May of 2020. And it is a coming-of-age memoir of a Filipino boy with albinism whose story travels from an immigrant childhood to Harvard to a gender transition and illuminates the illusions of race, disability, and gender. And um, Meredith, would you mind reading an excerpt from Ferrist? Sure. Um, I am going to read um, a few pages from the very first chapter. The book has a prologue. This is the very beginning of the, of the first part of the book, which is called Sunchild, um, and it's set um, in the Philippines, where um, I was born and grew up. Chapter 1. Among my people, it is a widely held belief that an infant would become whatever its mother had craved, sugar, and a child would turn out sweet, for instance, or plantains, and the baby would grow sturdy. Pregnant women were therefore advised not to spend too much time in the sun, and certainly not to stare at it directly, for fear that their, that their baby would be born a nakara, a sun child, the strangest creature whose skin was so pale it glowed, and who couldn't open its eyes except to squint, destined to be nearly blind, an affront against nature. Yet on the long bus ride from my parents' house in Manila to my hometown of Salaxan in the province of Bulacan, my grandmother, Nanay Koro, told me 
sure I was a blessing. She refused to allow anyone to talk about me any other way, especially because I was destined to live in America, the richest of countries, where Mama's father, Lola Bird, had settled, full of people who looked like me. And anyway, I wasn't like other Anabado. My mother stayed away from the sun when she was pregnant, but craved sweet corn. And so that, ha- that was how I must have ended up with corn soaked hair and fair skin. So I did burn in the sun. I wasn't near blind like I was supposed to be, only nearsighted, which was lucky since I wouldn't have known what to do with myself if I couldn't see. As our bus sped across the highway through an endless series of rice paddies, which I perceived as patches of yellowish brown since it was April and the fields had been harvested, my grandmother assured me that I was meant for a better future than her and our ancestors, farmers who had tilled soil in the fields surrounding our village for generations. This is because you are fair and beautiful, she said, not dark and ugly like me. I learned not to protest because I'd heard similar words many times before, not just from her, but from other relatives and neighbors in Talaxan, where I lived until I was three. I spent the last two years going to school in Manila and only making weekend visits back to the place I still considered home. But after my grandmother discovered that Mama had been locking me in my bedroom to go out after I fell asleep, and having learned that a distant cousin had died in a fire in the middle of the night, she insisted that I return to Tilaksan and wait another year to start first grade with other kids my age. There are people in Manila who think I look abnormal, I said. They're just jealous they don't have a child like you. I will leave it at that. Oh, great. Thank you, Meredith. And... You delve a lot into the nuances of race and color, gender, um, queerness, and what it means to be trans in your book as someone with albinism um, and white passing um, and is trans. And I'm wondering if you could talk about whose writing was important to you as you wrote this book. If there were scholars or other memoirists that you were looking to um, as, as models or also as examples um, in which you did not want the book to be. Yeah, I mean, I I read, I read um, pretty voraciously and widely, you know, like, um, I was definitely super interested in books by people who um, are in positions where they, they're not quite in the right place and time. Um, so somebody you know, somebody who is a real inspiration for this book is Seamus Baldwin, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and imagining what it was like for him um, during his time in Paris. Um, so, and, you know, like, I read um, Andre Osterman's memoir, um, Out of Egypt, which is also really fascinating in terms of, you know, in terms of him kind of, exploring a childhood in which he was never quite in the right place, right? Where he's, you know, like, he is Greek, but not quite, you know, like, not quite Greek, um, and also European, and also spending time in Italy. So those types of books were really important inspirations for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, you know, like, I also read, I read, I, there were, there were actually, I kept with me consistently throughout the process of writing. Um, 
because they have a tendency. I come from an academic background, um, and I have a tendency when I'm feeling um, vulnerable to sort of retreat into that space of, you know, cognition and analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and and both Jenny and Lydia are super, super great at, you know, sort of like grounding themselves in the sensory and in feeling and emotion without necessarily letting go of the um, of the rigor and the the sort of the conceptual elements of their work. So they were, you know, they were really important touch points for me um, as I was working on the book. But then, you know, um, it took a long time for the book to be written. So you know, the guys read everything from Nella Larson's passing mm-hmm. and, and sort of like books on the history of passing, Alison Hobbs. Um, you know, like I read stuff around, you know, like around sort of like gender and sexuality and sort of and um, books that sort of that kind of mush those elements together, right? Like Kiss of the Spider Woman or Orlando. Um, so yeah, you know, the book is really kind of like an amalgam of a bunch of different literary influences. That's great to hear just the lineage of writers behind your book. And you spoke about rigor and I noticed that in the structure where there is, there are these moments, um, in which you're writing about your childhood or adolescence. And then these moments of um, the present moment in which you're writing the book or, um, you know, that that self that occupies the adult self. And right. it felt, you know, in terms of the because you talked about like the emotion and not sacrificing the craft as well. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your background in in English and literature um, and art in general help to influence the craft of this of this book. Yeah, it's so funny how um, apart from you know spending a lot of time reading books, I also I also have a background in performing arts, right? Mm-hmm. So I was a dancer for a really long time and did dance um, super seriously. And one of the principles of dance is you rehearse and you practice and you go to the studio and take class, you know, like for hours and hours at a time. But then when you're performing, you forget all that. Mm. You, know, and you allow your unconscious to take over, right? And I, I think that the process of writing this book has been like that for me, where, um, where I have accumulated all of this, you know, just sort of like study and practice and then put myself in a space where when I was writing, I was writing from an unconscious space that has been informed by all of that training, right? Mm-hmm. So um, so a lot of the ways in which the book is structured, a lot of, you know, like the, the flash forward structure really evolved out of the interior of working in the book, like the realization that there 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when I was younger, I had a lot more of a tendency to try to sort of pre-plan everything and make everything perfect and make everything make logical sense and, you know, and, and build the sort of like super, super logically unassailable structure. Um, but what I found is that what you discover in the actual writing, it sort of produces its own structure that in a lot of ways, at least for me, I discovered is actually more interesting and elegant than something that is completely planned from the very beginning, right? Mm. Um, and that's been, you know, like that's been really fun to explore. And I think I talk a lot about, um, there's a section in the book where I talk about how fascinated I am by ants, right? Um, and the fact that um, in the Philippines, you know, like I grew up with, you know, with, we had a TV, but there were like five channels and they were very grainy. And so I had a lot of time in my hands to like play outdoors and explore. Um, and one of the things that I really loved was insects and, and, and I love essentially like experimenting with ants, right? Um, but I, but now that we're talking, like I also I, I do think that there is sort of I now recall, you know, like having an ant farm at a hmm. certain point in my childhood and sort of seeing how wonderfully those structures evolved in a way that isn't, you know, completely planned beforehand. That there is a certain kind of beautiful logic that happens when you just allow something to start and see where it goes. Hmm. I love that. And I think there's so much generosity in um, treating, you know, treating the process in that way, but also there's such generosity in writing it and sharing it with a readership. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what it means to draw from that place of generosity. I feel like it's such an intuitive part of my consciousness. The sort of sense that um, I do that that I live in a highly individualistic society while having grown up in a deeply communal hmm. society. Um, and so for me, it's not even really necessarily something I think about a lot at a conscious level. I think a lot about, um, about my generosity or lack thereof at at an individual level. Like, I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm actually less generous to people that I'm close to because I wasn't wasn't really taught or acclimated to be that way. Having had, you know, the parent, you know, I I wasn't really super, um, you know, like my parents really didn't pay a lot of attention to me as a kid. And my grandmother, who was my major parental figure, heavily, heavily indulged me. So it's much more of a daily concern for me that it's just like, oh, like, am I being selfish towards my sister 
stuff mm-hmm. about about actions that I've taken that are not ideal, um, and in turn, be honest with people about them. Um, and I think that that does come from a certain sense that as my um, as my career has evolved, as like I I I've been positioned in an exceptional way, like especially as Absolutely. And I think I I picked up on the generosity in just the rigor of honesty that you show in your writing and and pointing to your own complicity in power dynamics, whether it's through um, race or skin color um, or just relation, you know, romantic relationships and interactions. Um, I just felt like there were these um, I just felt like the generosity behind that. and, and being um, vulnerable in sharing that and writing that um, in your memoir. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, you know, everybody's a work in progress, right? Um, and I think, and, and in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm at my best as a writer, you know, just because, just because one of the things that I find so difficult to be is imperfect. Right. Like, it's very, very hard for me to... I remember um, I saw a therapist um, after my brother died. And um, and we, and I was talking about, you know, all of the things that I did that were wrong, that I could have done better in order, you know, like in order to make the situation with my brother better. And then... You know, my therapist stopped me and said, you know, like, do you think that if you're not, like, if you're not doing things well, that you deserve to be loved, right? Mm. Um, and I just cried, you know, like, it was just like this sort of, like, instantaneous um, rush of tears because I had never been asked that question. And, you know, and the answer was, of course not. No, I don't, I don't think that I deserve to be loved unless I'm, you know, like, unless I'm good and I'm excellent. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, because people, 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 my major parental figures made me feel 
Mm. But so much of my so much of my upbringing is about presenting this front of impenetrability. Um, and you know, like, and I'm glad that that's true because because that, because it is a really important um, aspect, not just of it's simultaneously like an important aspect of my development as a person, but also I think it's a really, really important aspect of writing a memoir. Mm. Like the most interesting things that happen to you are also usually the things that you, you know, spend days, years, months, years agonizing over and like repeating over and over in your head, playing over and over again in your mind and if you you know like if you make yourself a more um like if you sort of like airbrush yourself to appear more noble or you know better than the other people around you as you're narrating those events um i feel like most readers would understand that that doesn't feel quite Hmm. Even if they don't, even if they don't understand it consciously, right? I feel like I feel like that's something that readers can detect over and above the fact that there's such a long history of trans people needing to present ourselves as respectable hmm. in order for people not to to perceive us as valid, to not discriminate against us. Um, you know, like we couldn't, we can't like express any hint of regret about our transition. We have to be absolutely sure that we want surgery, otherwise we wouldn't get it. We have to be absolutely sure that we want to transition, otherwise we wouldn't get hormones, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like it was really important for me to um, to get out of that habit of having to justify myself mm-hmm. to people. And to just say, this is what happened. This is how I feel about it. Um, this is why I think it's important for me to write about it. And I hope that you, as a reader, can get something out of it. Right. And that idea of like a respectable trans story, um, it's also, and you write about this for Guernica magazine. It's just like that performance for a cisgender public, too. Like, who's, who are, who is the performance for? Um, right. And could you talk a little bit more about um, what that process was like for you to strip that away or to recognize that pattern um, in memoirs by trans women um, or trans folks in general? Um, was that something that was a conscious decision? Was there, you talked about therapy earlier. Um, was there, um, you know, did you have your own process of working through these experiences before putting them on the page? Yeah, you know, before I started working on the memoirs, I had been writing on trans issues for several years and have written, mm-hmm. you know, dozens and dozens of topical opinion pieces where, you know, there's something that's translated that happens with then I, I, I either um, write a critical piece about it 
Mm. Um, and so I think by the time that I started writing the memoir, it was like, you know, that dam had been built up for, you know, for such a long time of being like, okay, you know, like I put in my time. Mm. I've done the years of work explaining trans people to cis people, like, you know, like explaining why cis people shouldn't discriminate against us, explaining, you know, explaining what all of these topical aspects of trans experience have in relationship to my life. This book is just going to be about how I've experienced my transition on my own terms. Mm. Um, and how I've experienced my identity broadly in in my own terms, on my own terms, right? Um, and so, so in that sense, it wasn't hard. What was hard was having lived, you know, all of those years not doing that. Hmm. But by the time that I started the book, um, that felt super intuitive. Um, and, and, and that also, and that also, like one of the really interesting aspects of of becoming publicly disclosed as trans, becoming friends with more trans people, is that is that I suddenly had so many more friends who were people of color that and who come from marginalized backgrounds, who come from um, you know, like who come from poverty, because they spent long period of time being the white passing, you know, academic from the Philippines who was the only person, Hmm. not the only person, but, but who by and large was one of the very few people in the circles that I was operating in who came from a background of poverty, who came from, you know, like another country. Hmm. 
Absolutely. And I, I think in Ferrist, what I find, uh, what I appreciate in, um, in you negotiating privilege is through artifacts of, of uh, from literature or pop culture. And before the episode, we talked a bit about, or you mentioned Lea Salonga and your tenuous relationship to Miss Saigon and um, some of the... Which, which so many of us have. Right, right, absolutely, yes. Yeah, and I, but I appreciate that negotiation of privilege through the ways in which these artifacts are imperfect mirrors, right? Um, could you talk a little bit about that? You could talk about Miss well, Saigon if you want, or other um, yeah. other works. Sort of like American 
Yeah, with with um, it's interesting listening to early Lea Salonga recordings because she has that um, that accent that, and it almost sounds British to me. Well, Lea Salonga adapted her accent to whoever she was talking. To. Hmm. When she was in England, she had a British accent, and when yeah. she was in the States, she developed an American accent, which is something the two of us have in common. <laughs> because it's like, creative writing um to undergraduates and they ask me questions like how do I write about this trauma or what you know how do you walk through this in the writing and and I'm wondering if you would if you have advice for writers who are beginning to circle wounds that they have from childhood um, or growing up and um yeah if you could talk a little bit about that I do think that we live in a time where there's so much media and there's so many avenues to express your ideas, which also I feel like results in so much pressure to put your ideas out into the public realm. And I think that, I think, I do think that writing is a really, really important part Mostly, 
really sound advice and it and it's again that sense of generosity that um, and compassion that you can give to yourself as a writer as well and that not everything has to be performed or published and I think it's important especially if um, students are writing about things that are are um, from trauma um, I think you know I think back to some of my earlier writing workshops and I'm like, oh, I wasn't ready to write about that yet. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know if that yeah. was more harm than, it was probably more harmful than it was beneficial. Um, and so... Well, I remember I had this really funny experience where I was in the MFA program at Cornell and, um, and Juno Diaz was visiting and asked for stories that he could workshop. And I submitted a story and then a day later decided, oh, I'm not ready to workshop that story. It's too personal. It's mm-hmm. too difficult. The experience is too new. Um, so I substituted it for another story. But then apparently he did not get the substitution. So when the workshop came along, he spent an hour talking about <gasps> oh. the story that I didn't, that I, you know, and I was just too shy to, you know, because he prepared all of these notes. Absolutely. And as, as someone who, who teaches too, it's like, I don't want to, um, re-traumatize, you know, students, um, or in writers and, and, um, have a space that's toxic and, and not comfortable for, for folks to share. So, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have one or two more questions for you, if that's okay. Um, of course. Could you, you know, it's April 15th, we're multiple weeks into the quarantine, um, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you're navigating your creative life during this time, um, and also how you're navigating the release of your forthcoming book, because I'm, I'm sure it's it's looking quite different than what you had originally planned. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, I grew up in a place where, you know, we deal with the or volcanic eruption um, and then you know like the government is always unstable and you know like they're always you know all of these certain things going on mm-hmm. so I feel like you know so I feel like in the grand scheme of 
mm-hmm. studio where the times were um, that we're in now, especially because like during that entire period, you know, during and I also had um, a lot of family instability growing up. You know, writing has always been my place of refuge, right? So, mm. um, you know, so for me, in terms of my creative life, I mean, what's really interesting is that you know, is that yes, like I'm writing probably just as much as I did, you know, like before the quarantine. But that's not what I don't feel like. That's what's important. You know, like the point is that the point is that the reason I'm writing is not because, you know, like I need to get all of this writing done in order to, you know, like in order to whatever, you know, like fulfill some personal notion of what it means to be productive. And like I'm writing because I enjoy being in a world that I created in Mm. which I have, in which I have some control. Right, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And even when bad things happen, you know, like I usually how they're going to end up. Yeah. Okay, right? um, and I think, so I feel like it's not even like, a, you know, because there's such a plethora of like anti-productivity articles and then anti-anti-productivity articles. And I feel like the real goal is to just like separate your activity from the notion of productivity altogether. Mm, yeah. There are maybe things that you're super productive about and that's fine and there are things that you're super not productive about and that's totally fine except for signing up for health insurance (laughs) (laughs) and you know and like the basic things you know and getting help you know doing that um so that's one thing in terms of in terms of the book launch i mean again i you know like i'm a i'm a very adaptable person uh Mm. i know that you know this launching the book in this period has you know, like we're, you know, we're going into a recession. A lot of, you know, like a lot of people. It, you know, like we're we're going to fall into hard times. Um, apart from the disruption of the quarantine, but mm-hmm. I just sort of feel like, you know, like my book and its personal effects on me are so infinitesimal compared to the larger collective difficulties mm-hmm. that we're all having. And so, like, for me, it's just like, okay, well, I will do, you know, like, I will do whatever is within my power, you know, to, because obviously, like, I want to have, I want people to read the book because I feel like the book could be beneficial to them Mm -hmm. and also that they might like it. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, but at the same time, I just sort of, I feel like I'm no longer, I'm just no longer at a point in my life where where it has to be, you know, like the absolute 100% big blockbuster book, mm-hmm. blah, 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 right? Um, because, you know, because why? Yeah. Like, there's so many more important things that we need to think about. You know, like I wanted to have the impact that it has along with the impact of so many other books that are going to be published this year and hopefully indefinitely Mm -hmm. um, as you know like as because storytelling and the telling of experience is always going to be a a vital vital part of of our culture and a really important part of what it means to be alive Mm -hmm. um so yeah 
Yeah. And I, I just had a conversation with a, a writer friend of mine and we talked about how um, there's so many things that don't matter as much anymore <laughs> um, in comparison to how this pandemic is affecting people. Um, you know, we were talking about the prestige of getting a grant or, you know, this poet getting, um, you know, published by this press. It's like none of that stuff really matters. Right. <laughs> you know, like it's just, right. it, and it, and it didn't matter before, but it, I think I just see that a lot more clearly. Yeah. I mean, that's the funny thing is like none of it, none of it does or ever has, right. Mm-hmm. You know, like the thing, the thing is that being able, I think for me at least my, my, I feel most artistically free when I'm able to separate the external, you know, the external implications of my work from the work itself. You know, I just do the work. Mm -hmm. I try to be in a place where I, you know, where I'm as honest with myself as possible when I'm working on fiction. Um, I, you know, like, I'm just expressing the specific concerns that I have that are important to me in my work. And whatever else the world thinks of it is, is what the world thinks of it. Mm. You know, like it's not anything that I can control. If the world thinks it's great, then that's amazing. You know, if it doesn't, then that's fine too. As long as, you know, especially, I think, especially because I've acculturated in academic culture, you know, for academics, if 10 people read our work and like it, <laughs> right. it's success, you know what I mean? Um, and so for me, you know, the, some of the people that I most respect um, have expressed, you know, such admiration for the book, both publicly and privately. But for me, like that's that's amazing. Hmm. Right? Um, you know, just just people who I love being so kind towards the book um, is is more than enough. And then the rest of it is just crazy. Right. Um, and that's such a, um, I love that perspective because I think it can get so easy to get caught up in the world's opinion, um, of, of what they think about the work or, or, um, you know, just the role of my, you know, the role of the writer. And, um, and so I think, I think it's important to, to figure out what, um, for, at least for me, what my priorities are. And, um, and I think there's a lot of. Uh, uh, solitude, but also, um, you know, a sense of quiet around that, you know, that gives me peace in thinking about the role of the writer in that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I also, it's also really important to acknowledge that it's a, that it's a privileged position, mm-hmm. right? And that it, it, it completely makes sense that people are concerned about their careers because their careers in America often equate to their livelihood. Right? right. You know, like I can be in the position that I'm in because of the fact that I'm not, I'm in a position of economic, I'm in, in an economically sustainable position right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so I think that that's also, that's also really important. That's like a, that's like the, the third side of the triangle to, you know, I feel like, yes, 
you know, allow the work to exist for itself, separate it from the external accolades or the, what the public thinks of the work, and yet at the same time also acknowledge that those that external, um, you know, like that external reception does affect you economically. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're only, you can separate the economic from the spiritual, which can be hard. Yeah. Um, I feel like I feel like that's the health for at least for me that's been the healthiest way of um, of conducting my life. But it's also in the context of you know like even. Even when I didn't, you know, like I wasn't writing full time, I was, you know, like I was translating, which is surprisingly lucrative in America, hmm. Tagalog to English translation, who knew? Um, you know, I had means to obtain, you know, sustainable income, which a lot of people don't, you know, like a lot of people are not in a position. Um, and so all of these things are completely understandable. Um, but it's just, but at the same time, at the same time, I do, I do feel like um, really focusing on what's important, really looking at situations for what they are, mm-hmm. rather than, um, you know, rather than trying to sort of like spin out, right, yeah. like into 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 these sorts of like unrealistic expectations for work that you can't really control, I think, is, mm-hmm. I think it's really important. For sure. And, um, I guess our last question, um, for today, um, I'm just curious to hear what you're reading these days, um, what you're experiencing in terms of, um, you mentioned per- the performing arts, um, if there's anything online that you're watching, and then what you're working on next. Ah, okay. Um, I have, I've been blurbing. Well, I'm actually not, it's funny because I agreed to blurb um, initially two books. Um, one is called Ace by Angela Chen, which is about asexuality. Um, and the other is Brown Tears, White Scars. Oh no, mm-hmm. White Tears, Brown Scars. Yeah. Yes, White Tears, Brown Scars by Ruby Hamad, which talks about um, how you know, white fragility, and especially the fragility of white women, um, negatively impacts people of color. Ooh, um, that sounds great. <laughs> but, but I ended up, I just ended up declining both words because I want to assign one um, for a Q&A at them, you know, oh. which, is, which is too much of a conflict of interest, mm-hmm. and I want to write about the other one as a critical article. Um, but those are the two books that I've been um, that that I've read uh, most recently, and uh, things I'm watching. I'm I'm learning the ukulele. Oh, cool! Right <laughs> so yeah, I've been watching a lot of a lot of ukulele uh, ukulele you know tutorial videos, and and also taking online group classes, which is so much fun, and I highly recommend because I didn't realize how much I miss encountering strangers hmm. <laughs> yeah. until I started taking online classes and was just like, oh, I have no idea who you are, but I'm interacting with you. It's <laughs> so wonderful. And it's not like, and it's not awkward because like we're learning, there's like an experience. 
Mm-hmm. So I highly, highly recommend that. You know, like learning a skill and teaching group online classes in the skill has been just like my favorite thing. I might actually, I might actually pitch an article about it for Wired. You know, I love it so much. <laughs> so are you are you taking an online ukulele class or there's on, different online I, classes? I'm taking I'm taking online ukulele classes and singing classes, oh. which is even more interesting because it's vulnerable yeah. to like sing in front of people, and it's lovely how supportive you know people are and you know the people cheering other people on. It's just, it's so great. Um, it makes me it makes me feel more positive about the world. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm taking oh I just finished a, a an online writing class and it was um it was the coolest thing it was just story idea um, generation uh-huh. and all strangers and um but everyone was so supportive and enthusiastic about each other's ideas and by the end of it we're all like exchanging our personal emails to stay in touch and I was like how this is so fun and um yeah. and it's and it's. Um, exciting to hear what people are, are churning out and thinking about. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Meredith, it was really wonderful to have you on the show today. And um, your book is incredible. And I'm so grateful I was able to nab a review copy of it. And um, and listeners out there can pre-order the book um, through the Penguin, Penguin Random House website. Or if you want to support a local independent bookshop, you can go to bookshop.org and pre-order Fairest by Meredith Toulousan. Meredith, thank you again. 